0: I want to talk about Malachi today. Um, And if you'll bear with me, we're actually going to work through the whole book. We're certainly not going to read it all. I'll do my best to read as much as I can. Um, But I want us to see the things that Malachi says, particularly about the shortcomings of the Israelites. Um, And keep in mind that the Israelites in this text, what I mean by that are just those trying to follow God. It might not have been Israelites in the truest sense of maybe like, back in first Samuel where there was a nation and they were like having come out of Egypt or something like that It's maybe a little more mixed and mingled than it had used to be. But those who were in that place trying to follow God, that's what I mean by Israelites. And so we we'll look at what he says beginning in verse two. I have loved you says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us is not, Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I'll tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Right off the bat, We have this back and forth between God, and I don't know if, like, there's a literal exchange here or if there is kind of a figurative exchange where, like, we see basically people saying these types of things, and so Malachi kind of creates this back and forth. I don't really know exactly how this unfolds, but we see an exchange between God and the Israelites, right? And what it starts with here is a basic premise, which I hope all of us can appreciate. God says, I have loved you. Now, think about Israelite history. Should that have been a known thing? Well, I mean, you think about Egypt and all that God goes through to pull them out of there. And then you think about the wilderness and all that God goes through to take care of them. He even sends them specific routes so they don't have to deal with certain problems. And we find out that their sandals aren't wearing out. Food's raining down from heaven, basically whatever they complained and wanted. Um... And then they get there and they're not faithful enough to go in. And so even in the time that God is allowing generations to die off, he's still taking care of them. You know, I mean, you just think about over and over again, all this stuff. I mean, you think about the United Kingdom and all the blessings that God bestowed on them as a nation in David's reign and even in Solomon's reign. And then you think about the divided kingdom, how even though they were like bickering and there was a lot of political like faith filled issues, like God was still like. Allowing them to be there in that place. I mean, you just go through their history, and when God says, "I have loved you," you might expect the response to be like, "Yes, we know this." Right? You might, at worst, expect the response to be like, "We believe you," right? Like maybe we don't feel it, but like maybe we would trust that you think that's true. But the response is, "How have you loved us?" I suspect a lot of us have been in this place before. And I suspect that maybe some of you might still be. I don't know. Uh, maybe there's moments in your life right now where you're still kind of asking that question. Like, God is clearly loving us, right? But you're still kind of like, ah, yeah, but how? Like, I don't feel it. I don't know it maybe in the way that I wish I did. I hear what you're saying, but it's not it doesn't ring true for me, right? That's essentially what Israel, I'd say. But look at God's evidence that he offers on behalf of his love for them. And it's a really simple, like, he doesn't do what I just did. He doesn't say, like, let me walk you through your history. He just takes one point, a very fundamental point, right? He's talking to Israelites, and he says, well, why do I care about Israelites? Like, why not Edomites? That's proof that I love you, right? Like, I don't regard Edom the same way I regard Israel, I mean, isn't isn't Esau Jacob's brother, right? Esau being the father of the Edomites, Jacob being basically the father of the Israelites. Like, why you guys? Right. I think this is the first of what we see as six kind of like fruits of their faithlessness. Um, I hope that makes sense, fruits of faithlessness. Um, but this is the first of six that God kind of that I feel God details. You might read through this and pick out maybe one or two more nuanced versions of these. But I feel like there's six of them. So the first is not acknowledging God's love. God says, you know, you're Israelites. Like, who cares about you, right? Like, what makes you so special? Other than the fact that I have loved you, right? That's his point. I chose you to love. You know, anytime Edom tries to do something, you know what I do to them? I, like, knock it down and destroy it because they're, you know, they're not, they're not the people that I love. You think back in Genesis, like, God made a covenant, right, with Abraham and his people. And specifically as he kept having kids and kids kept having kids, he kept, like, narrowing his focus. Like, it's these people, it's these kids, it's these descendants, not these other ones, right, which Esau would have been a part of. So I suspect that many of us, as we get into the application of these, I hope your mind's already turning When you feel this sort of way, maybe you have a similar answer, and we'll talk more about that here in a moment, a little bit later in the lesson. But that's kind of the first faithless kind of fruit that we see in these people. Of course, the solution is, like, just remember God's faithfulness. Remember, like, he chose the Israelites. The second one is a little bit further on down. Let's read in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. That's just a fact of life, right? That's the structure. If then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will they accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit All right, so there's a whole lot of stuff said in this, but it all kind of revolves around the fact that Israel does not fear and consequently does not honor God. And the way that kind of unfolds is through this discussion about like their sacrifices and what they vow and what they offer versus what they actually deliver, right? And so in this, we have this complaint, right? Am I not a father and a master? Then where is my honor? Where is my fear? And so they basically say back to him, like, well, how have we despised you, right? Because that's the claim. You haven't honored, you haven't feared me, you've despised my name. And they're like, well, how have we done that? Well, look at what he says in verse 7. By offering polluted food on my altar. Now, there's a lot we could say about this, and the text that we just read has more to say about it than just that. But their response to that is like, well, what, how, how have we done that? Right? Like what do you what do you mean by we might say, what do you mean by polluted food? Right? Well, God details that out and he says, Well, you you offer me what's stolen, or like what you cheated for. That's one. Or otherwise you offer me what's like blind or lame or sick. Either way, the idea is that you're not offering what is your best. You might be offering what is someone else's best that you stole, maybe. Right? Or you might be offering what is your worst. <laughs> Either way, you've offered something that is, by nature, in God's eyes, polluted. It's not a pure offering. It's not a sacrifice in any sense of that word. And so, look at verse thirteen. I think this might be the—I don't know if I could say this, but to me, is sort of the most striking and condemning thing that happens in this exchange. Verse 13 says, after God explains that to them, they say, what a weariness this is. Israel not only messes up the whole like sacrificial idea concept of an offering, they blow it. They don't honor and by by implication. They're not honoring or fearing God like they should. But when God tells them this stuff not only are they asking questions, you realize that they're not just asking questions to like solve the problem. You know, it's not like someone's saying, well, like, what do you mean by polluted? And when he explains it, they're like, oh, okay, I get it, like, I'll change that. They say, well, that's tiring, like, that's exhausting. Like, I don't wanna do that kind of what you'd imagine being said next, right? Like, what a weariness this is to hear you go on and on about this polluted stuff. Like, aren't we giving you something? (laughs) you might kind of infer that language. The sin here, I believe, is not honoring or fearing God. I hope that we don't relate to, like, these conversations. But I'll speak for myself. I know that I do. Like, I know the first sin, right, that we saw is, like, not acknowledging God's love. I've been that person that says, how do you love me? And I've been that person that has, like, not honored and feared God. And I've thought when I've realized, like, the error of that i thought man like that's a pain right i've been i've been israel right look at the third sin so the second right it was not honoring or fearing god which of course the the obvious solution is to do so right but the third um sin is in chapter two so if you'd like to look at that with me it actually begins in verse 14, um, but in between this, I do want to mention that like God kind of lays in on the priesthood here. You've already seen it mentioned in chapter 1, but in chapter 2, he like, really goes in on the failures of the priests, which we all know, right, the priests were God to the people. And then consequently, when they turned around, they were the people to God. Right. So they had a really big, like important role of being that mediator, both directions. And so you could blow it in one way and you could blow it in a completely other sense in the other way. Right. Like you could misrepresent either side. And that's essentially what he says they're doing. And and essentially in chapter two, if you read up until verse 13 or so, like he's saying, like, and you're not even really trying. But that's a big, big problem. Right. But let's pick up in verse 13. And this second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. All right, so right off the bat, we know, like, the Israelites are upset about something, and we know that God is not accepting their offering. That seems to be what they're upset about. We don't really know what's going on yet. In verse 14, he says, why does he not? Right? The Israelites are like, why don't you take our offering?" Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to your, the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife... divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Many translations are going to say like God hates divorce in this text, which I think is a fair representation of what God's saying here. Some translations say what this one does, that whoever divorces covers his garment in violence, which I think fundamentally kind of leads you to the same place. It's not something you want. God doesn't look on favor with you right Like this is a sinful thing but stepping outside of that this this sin that we're seeing through chapter two particularly in verse 14 is we're seeing like there's a failure in the home right like there's a failure in covenants so to speak like with your wife and with your husband like there's no honoring of that and so there's divorce there's these broken families and it says god's hope for this was like godly offspring and that's not happening and so here we see what is a third sin, and that is not being faithful to spouses. And of course, I hope we understand fundamentally like, the value of that, how God has instituted that from Genesis 1, right? He'll, man looks out, and God even has man like sort through the animals and name them, and at the end of it, he's just like, yeah, there's nothing quite good enough, right? And that's when God's like, well, here you go. I'll make something for you from yourself, Well, that hadn't been honored. They were just, like, breaking that up like it was nothing, right? And God's hopes and designs for that, like they were nothing. And so their sacrifices and their offerings weren't being accepted, right? Um, Some of us may be able to relate to this. Um, Maybe we see the fruit of our spiritual lives not really blossoming and not really producing in ways that we might expect because we find ourselves— We've found ourselves short in this area. That seems to be what's happening to the Israelites. They're saying, well, why aren't you accepting our offerings? And God's like, because you're not even regarding my teaching and the covenants that I put in place for you. Maybe some of us relate to that. Maybe we relate to it currently, or maybe we can look at our past and say, yep, I've been there. I hope none of us look at our futures and say, yeah, I'm headed there. Uh, Because the teaching in this text is telling us that God hates does not desire this situation for his people, right? Look back at verse 9 of chapter 2. This is the part that I kind of skimmed over for a moment. Or sorry, we'll begin in verse 8. Speaking of the priests, you have turned aside from the way, you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but so show partiality in my instruction. Fundamentally, I think in a lot of ways what's going wrong with verse fourteen when we're talking about the marriages being broken and divorce happening is there's a failure in a covenant, right? Husbands and wives make promises, make covenants with one another. But ultimately as well, there's a failure in God's ways, as described in verse ten. Right? so we see that sin as being faithlessness towards spouses and in families but in verse 9 what we have detailed for us out is the priests have been kind of the same thing towards God and the people they have broken covenants they have not taught God's ways and so that's another sin we see among the people is that there was a failure generally in teaching God's ways sometimes it was in the home husbands and wives were failing each other and definitely in the priesthood they were failing the people and they were failing God and like I said you could read chapter 2 from the beginning and look at some of the specific things that God says about that um, but the solution is obvious I would hope I think every problem that Malachi brings up the solution is obvious right if you're not teaching God's ways well then there are to, to fix that, you start teaching God's ways. If you're breaking covenants, well, stop breaking covenants, right? They're not always easy. I don't mean to imply that they're simple uh, in their application and their effect and how you, like, administer the solution. But, like, the idea is simple, right? Uh, and I would hope that we all see that and accept that. Look in chapter 3. I know we're moving fairly quickly here through this these texts. I mean, in chapter 3 another sin kind of surfaces here in malachi's teaching or sermon or whatever you want to call this and i want to begin in verse six and then we'll read down the, the sin is actually in verse eight so that's what we're to zero in on but beginning in verse six for i the lord do not change therefore you O children of jacob are not consumed From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. faithless fruit that we see is that God says that they're robbing him specifically we see that apparently when they give contribution they're like skimming it like it's not all making it to like God's house right and I don't know it's like what degree they're skimming it like if this is negligible or not obviously God can see through whatever amount you might be taking out of his contribution but that's not the point the point is like the people are robbing God and I think Josh made a good point about this earlier when we were doing our own contribution. He said, like, certainly it's not that God needs the money, right? Like, this isn't like God is like a beggar, and he says, like, yeah, I gave away all I had, so I need you to give some back. Like, I mismanaged what I had to give. My immeasurable riches turned out to be measurable. Who knew? Right? This is more a heart thing, right? Like, why, why would you rob God? Why would you skim off the top? And I think he gets to the heart of really what is spoken of here. The core of the heart issue really is what he says in verse 11. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And he goes on to talk about how he'll bless them, right? In verse 10, he says that this is a form of test for him. If you really believed in me you wouldn't be skimming off the top. You wouldn't be taking the contribution because you know what that would mean? Your faith would be in me to actually provide for you. And guess what? That'd be a test for me. And how would God, like, pass the test? Well, he would rebuke the devourer and he would give them uh, vines of the field that don't fail to bear. And, like, he would bring blessing on them. And so they're kind of hedging their bets, so to speak, right? Like, this reflects a, a, a true, like, Fundamental faithlessness to God. Like, we're going to take a little off top because we need it, right? I don't know about you guys, of the sins so far, this one rings the most consistently true or, like, tempting for me. Like, kind of hedge my bets a little bit, right? Like, I know I need to X, Y, Z for God, but I'm going to only X and Y, right? Because... Really, I need that other thing to do this or to prepare for this or to be, and we'll use words like this, to be a good steward, I need to, like, do this and that. And, like, that's how I, won't put words in your mouth, that's how I can kind of be a little faithless without seeming faithless, right? Like, if I, you know, if I did this, then what would I have for myself? And I know I got to take care of my family and yada, yada, yada. Well, don't you think they said things like that? Like well, we got to take care of our family, and like we're the nation of Israel, we got walls to build and like temple to keep up, and like my kids got to eat, right? They got to have some, you know, they got to live in a safe neighborhood, right? That was a sin on their part to 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 take from what should have been God's, what should have been used for the things God was telling them to keep up and to use it for. They weren't. And God was saying, look, you could have been testing me and I could have been proving myself true and faithful, but you didn't give me the chance. We've sold ourselves short if we make that same mistake. And I think what God's saying is we we don't even get to see God the way that he wants to show himself if we do that. Another sin that we see in this text is in verse 13, right where I stopped reading. Let's read it together. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And you have said, it is vain to serve, the, serve God. What is the profit of, uh, of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. The last sin that I see Malachi kind of point out and have an exchange about is this idea that there are those speaking against God. Um, I mean, I know I've done this. Like, I know I'm sure in my life I've had, like, these kind of blasphemous moments, and, and I pray that I've repented of all of them. Um, but, like, I've been there. I've done this. I've thought things like this. Like, what is the point in doing this? Right? Like God says it, I don't want to do it, I don't see the point in it. And in fact, in some ways, I'm sure God looks at my life and says, you know, Josh, I remember times where uh you would even kind of influence people to think the same way about that thing. Right? Because that seems to be going on in verse fourteen, right? They say, What's the profit of our keeping his charge? And so you know what ends up happening? Now the arrogant are called blessed. And evildoers prosper and they escape judgment, right? They put God to the test and they escape. There's no being held accountable for that. There's no corrective teaching or discipline. They just it's okay. They're you know, they're arrogant, but they're blessed. I don't know how many of us share in that. I imagine there's a lot of us in this room, if not all of us can maybe relate to this. You know what Israel says to this? They said, how have we spoken against you? And when God points it out, what's interesting to me is there's not a whole lot of rebuttal. Like some of the earlier ones, they kept asking questions. You know, it's like, how have we polluted you? Well, when did we do that? Well, that that's exhausting, right? Like, it's just like, well, how did we speak against you? And then he says it, and that's just kind of the end of the conversation. I don't know if it's meant to be read as like an implicit, like, yeah, we did that. <laughs> or if that's just... Because the next thing we see in verse 16 is a contrast. Well, those who feared the Lord, they spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So it seems like maybe some people just dismissed it altogether. Like it doesn't say everybody like then tried to remember this and learn from it. It's just like, well, those who fear the Lord, like they took the lesson at heart, and they kind of made a book of remembrance, and yada, yada, yada. Before we move on to, like, maybe the crux of this lesson, um, I hope that, like, as you see these sins, you see that even though they were 2,500 years ago, and they were half a world away in a totally different culture, like, they're us. Like, we do the same dumb stuff before God. Um And I hope you see the solutions are still the same types of solutions. Just stop doing the dumb stuff, right? But what we haven't talked about is a big part of Malachi's writing that makes not doing the dumb stuff really possible. And that's who he talks about in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. So at the very end of chapter 2, look at verse uh, 17 with me. Chapter 2, verse 17. Some of your Bibles may even lump that in, the the paragraph, with chapter 3. It's kind of like lumped like that so anyway you'll notice in verse 17 it says this you have wearied the lord with your words but you say how have we wearied him that could have been i guess the seventh sin by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the lord and he delights in them or by asking where is the god of justice so i want to stop here for a moment there's kind of two questions that are at the heart of whatever what what is going to be said and that is Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, right? And he delights in those who do evil, right? That's kind of like one thing that God is going to address. And then the other thing that he's going to address is where is the God of justice? So think about those two things beginning in chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger, and I believe this to be a second messenger, which we'll talk about in a moment. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in in former years. All right, so we'll stop there for now. There are two messengers in this text. The first one is described as being the preparer, right? He's going to prepare the way. Um, Your mind probably is already jumping to John the Baptist. If it's not, I believe that's the right jump to make. Um, There's a bunch of texts that I believe are very, like, clear that this is john the baptist um i'll i'll throw out some we're not going to turn to these but i'll just throw them out there isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 matthew 11 verse 10 mark chapter 1 verse 2 luke chapter 1 16 and 17 luke 7 27 like several of these passages uh, i don't think luke i mean isaiah 40 says this specifically but the ones that are in the gospels specifically like quote this in the context about John the Baptist. So we know that's who is the first messenger. He's going to prepare the way. That's not who I really want to talk so much about, but I felt like that was necessary to say. And the Lord, in verse 1, whom you will seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is who I want to zero in on. So, one is the Lord's going to come to his temple. The hope of all israelites right like that is it like when if you were to ask an israelite like what do you want to see god in his temple like that's it right like in zion in his temple god like that's what i want right well that's going to happen he's going to come suddenly but the second part of this is the messenger of the covenant and apparently who in whom they delight so i think there's an expectation of this promised one right of the covenant I think this is Jesus. I think Malachi is telling us Jesus, right? God's going to come into his temple, and a messenger of a covenant's coming, right? Um, Jesus is given to us by Malachi in prophetic language, kind of veiled, right? As the answer to those kind of concerns at the end of chapter 2. Let's remind ourselves of what those were, right? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he he delights in those. And the second part being, where is the God of justice? When God wants to answer those questions, even to people 2,500 years ago in Israel, like he said, my messenger of the covenant is coming. Every sin that we saw up through chapter 2, which I think was like, four or five of them that i pointed out um the answer or the way to like really deal with that was going to come with the second messenger when the lord comes in his temple and the messenger of the covenant happens because look at what else is said who can endure the day of his coming who can stand when he appears well certainly not the people malachi is talking to right like that's where my brain goes like well these people aren't for he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap okay well what does that mean well he will sit as a refiner And a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, right? Chapter 2, they're not teaching. They're breaking the covenant. He's going to fix that. And he will refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. What was a big problem? The lame and the sick and what was stolen. Like, he's going to fix that. And then the offering of Judah and of Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. What were they weeping about? Well, God's not accepting our sacrifices. Well, because you've broken covenants and it's not pleasing to him. Well, he's going to fix that, right? As in the days of old, as in, in former years. So every hope that you have as an Israelite will be fixed when the second messenger comes and the Lord comes in his temple. And every hope that you have to be like the glory days of David and Solomon or whatever, like it'll be like that when the second messenger of the covenant comes. The first messenger is going to prepare the way. The Lord's going to come into his, in his temple. But then that messenger of the covenant, is all this stuff's going to happen once he comes. This isn't the only thing Malachi says about this. Um, There's there's aspects of this that speak of judgment too, right? Like no one's going to be able to stand before him. And the positive aspect that I'm talking about is certainly true. Like he's going to fix all that stuff. But did you notice how he fixes it? Like a refiner or a purifier, a refiner of like fine metals or a purifier of soap. I'm far less familiar with the second one never made soap don't know what goes into that but apparently it's like refining metal in a sense where you got to get impurities out of it you got to filter it and like clean it but the negative aspect or like the harsher aspect of that good stuff is that there is a fire and there is a refining and like not everything makes it through the fire right so he's also talking about when the second messenger of this covenant comes not only will he fix all the the bad stuff but like it seems like he's going to burn away the bad stuff, right? Uh, it's not an aspect of the Messiah that I tend to want to dwell on, but is a huge part of the Messiah, you don't have one without the other, right? We've known that from Egypt. We've known that from the flood even, right? Judgment on the world was salvation for Noah's family. Salvation for Noah's family was judgment on the rest of the world, right? And so look at what else is said about this, um, this messenger of the covenant in chapter four, beginning in verse one. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That's the negative part, right? That's the part none of us want to think about. We don't want to be the part that's left burned up without a root or a branch right but here's the positive part but for you who fear my name the sun s-u-n the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings shall go out or you shall go out like leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when i act says the lord of hosts all right so we have the lesser the less fun part to think about is like the burning and and the refining and all that stuff that doesn't end up so well right but the other part is for those who fear my name which is what the problem right at the beginning of chapter one they don't really know if god loves them they don't really honor or fear him he says well those of you who do you don't have to like fear like the refining that's going to happen because a different kind of heat or fire is going to come, right? There's a sun of righteousness. And instead of, like, you know, if you if you think about the wings of, like, a star, it's, we often, like, think of, like, solar flares. And, like, if you zoom in on a star, you'll see, like, loops coming off of it of, like, heat or fire, or energy, you know, just kind of, like, they they burst out a lot. That's what I thought of when I thought of a sun with wings. I thought of, like, those things that, like, shoot out. And so my brain kind of went to, like, Well, this sun is inherently different. It's not just going to burn up everything, like maybe the first part talked about. It brings righteousness, and the wings bring healing, right? Instead of, like, the, the burning and the fire of, like, a typical sun, right? And so for those who fear the name of the Lord, they don't have to worry about, like, the heat that's coming, so to speak, right? There's a sun of righteousness, and there's healing. That's a beautiful picture, and I think that's Malachi's answer for all of this stuff. And I really think this is the way that we look at the Bible. As Christians, we know Jesus, we know God's like eternal plan. We've been talking about it in Ephesians, right? From the beginning of the foundations of the world, God, or from before the beginning of the foundations of the world, God has had a plan that he would send his son and do all this stuff, right? Well, as those people who understand that plan more, maybe more thoroughly than anyone has ever had a privilege to without the full revelation of God in years past... We should look at this and say, man, I'm really thankful for that son of righteousness, that second messenger of the covenant, Jesus Christ, who makes it possible that when God looks at me and is using teachers and prophets to tell a bunch of people that, like, you're sinful and you're dirty and you're doing all this stuff wrong, right, which is kind of what Ephesians 2 was talking about. You used to be those people, right? Those of us who fear the name of the Lord can know that, well, that's who he used to be. And when that fire comes, that sun, so to speak, we expect it to be of righteousness and of healing for us. And look at what happens. It's not just like that. It's not just like a sunrise and like, oh, what a nice like, sun of righteousness. And oh, I feel better. Like I'm healed. There's also this other stuff that happens. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I didn't grow up on a farm or like around cows like that, but my half-sister long story ended up with a cow and so i would go to her house every blue moon i can tell you that guys that, that'll come later i can tell you that later but she ended up with a cow and i remember going over to her house. it was actually a bull it was a male we'd go over to her house and his name was stormy and like they didn't really keep him in a pen but i can remember a few occasions of like him being kind of hemmed in in some way And like the moment you let him out of there, it's like he went nuts for like a minute, right? Like he would just be jumping, thrashing around, like just running the space that's around if he had been pinned especially against his will, right? He would just go nuts. And I remember there's a few occasions where like he had to be that like overnight and you'd let him out in the morning and he would just do the same thing. And in my reading, because I didn't grow up on a farm, I, like, started Googling this. I'm like, is this, like, a thing that's understood, like... But apparently, like, when you put animals in a pen, lo and behold, when you let them out, they do this kind of stuff, right? They want to jump around and thrash about. I would, too. I can't blame them. I had a dog. He did the same thing. But the point is, there's, like, a joy and excitement for when the sun comes out. Like, you kind of go out, like joyfully and ecstatically but also that there's another part of this like the wicked are tread down in the joy of like or the result of joy kind of what it seems like um i don't really know how to explain that other than just to say that it's true like i don't know what example to give to illustrate that but i think the joy of those who receive the son of righteousness and get the healing like when we are kind of like calves in that moment like The wicked are cut down or tread down with that Um, I think you know I think in your head you probably know what I'm talking about even though I can't give an example of it we've seen that right like the joy of being healed by the Lord and knowing the messenger of the covenant like just cuts down the wickedness right just cuts it down and I think that's what's being said here you shall tread down the wicked not because we hate those people but that's just what happens by nature when god has been good to you right you tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when i act the messenger of yahweh malachi had a lot of stuff he wanted to say to those people and they had a lot of problems that we are probably pretty familiar with right and i think he could have spent a lot of time giving them like here's step one, two, three, four, and how to like correct this but they knew it they knew what they were doing they knew how to change it's not hard to figure out like how to change that stuff the real hope and the real joy that Malachi had and even the real instruction that he offered them was not that stuff was like to, to think about the second messenger of the covenant that you can put your hope in coming and we know he didn't come in the lives of these people but he says those who fear my name what did they do they wrote a book of remembrance they had placed their hope in some messenger that we know they they never literally saw come just like you and me none of us have literally seen jesus arrive but we can be a lot like them if we listen to malachi we have a book of remembrance and we think about the second messenger of the covenant and we think about the son of righteousness with healing in its wings And all the problems that God points out to us, we need to deal with them and we need to change and we need to repent and we need to, you know, give real offerings and we need to have faith and all that stuff. But ultimately it boils down to whether or not I'm going to be burned up by that covenant, this messenger of the covenant, the son of righteousness, or whether I'll be healed. And if you can't say with all certainty that you've done what's necessary to be healed by that son of righteousness then Malachi might have a similar message for you about not being able to stand before the Lord. And in that day, you can't stand. Who can resist? But for those of us in this room that have put our faith in the Son of Righteousness, we've obeyed Him, we can know that we'll have healing, that we can be like calves, as weird as that is to say and so that that's the message i hope we always read the bible that way we see the hope that jesus brings in every passage of scripture i hope that's encouraging for you Um, if there's anyone that has something they need to change or has something you want us to pray about like let somebody know let me know because the time that robin leads us in this song is the time for us to think about that and to reach out for help if we need it so please think about that while we're singing